Hello and welcome to episode 5 of Penny Red. My name is Daniel Hodges, writer and designer of Victoria and host of this podcast. If you'd like more information about the role-playing game Victoria, go to victoriarpg.com and for more information about the podcast, go to pennyredpodcast.com. A special hello this week to Narrative Control listeners tuning in on the heels of Sean's appearance last week and also a hello to new listeners. The general format of the show is that I ask a series of questions to my guest, which is kind of like inside the actor's studio, and I've called inside the roleplay studio. So, without further ado, my guest today is Chris Bailey. And any of you who are particularly uh, careful when it comes to reading your books will notice that there's a small piece in the acknowledgements the front, which say, Chris, for being Chris, and for running the Mage campaign, that was as well written and grossing and tight as any piece of fiction I've ever read. It was that game with Mason Dean, Craig Laurie and Tim that showed me what role-playing could be. So that's why I've got Chris on the show today, because he's without question the single biggest influence on me having written Victoria and the way that I wrote it. So, hi Chris, how's it going? It's going well, thanks Dan. Good to talk to you again. Yes, it's been, must have been, oh, could be 15, no, 12, 13 years since we actually spoke, spoke. Probably, yeah. Something like that since you moved it, up to uh, Auckland? Yeah, it's been at least that long. And are you still into role-playing? I'm still into role-playing, but I just don't have the time at the moment to um, to invest in doing any role-playing. I, I did some oh, about four years ago now, and then one of my friends that was uh, involved in that campaign got really sick, so we shelved it, and then he passed away, so Sorry. nobody really got back into it we no, sort of just left it at that okay well because that was really going to be my uh my first question which was um how long have you been a role player uh i worked uh, interesting question when i actually worked it out i, I worked out it's been 30 years and i thought oh my god i've been a role player longer than i've been anything else right and that's uh you must have been in from basically from day one uh yeah pretty much well, the first system that i ever played was basic D&D. Right. Um, and you know those days, of course, it wasn't called basic D and D. It was just D and D, Dungeons and Dragons. Sure. And you had? The, did you have the red box set with the paper yeah. dice? Did you have the paper yeah. dice as well? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cut them out and take them out of an envelope. That, it, yeah. it was just, it was just crazy. But I was so excited to get it. Um, it was interesting. I, I'd been drawn to role playing from. In high school, I can't remember what the magazine was that I was reading. I think it might have been some comics books or something. But in the back of the magazine, it talked about various role-playing games. And it talked about taking on these characters and, and living adventures. And I I was hooked without even having experience that I was hooked. And so there was a mention of it in the back of a magazine and you said, that's for me. So you were kind of going solo. There wasn't actually any particular person that got you interested? No, no, no. I started it. I started it when I when I first went to university. Um, so within two weeks of being at university, I was in the centre of Auckland, and so I had access to the big bookshops that were there. And I walked down to, and I can't even remember which bookshop it was. Now it wasn't the main one. It wasn't a it wasn't a um, a Whitcalls or anything like that. Um, and I found it there, and so I bought basic D&D, and then I caught up with all my old schoolmates who had come to university at the same time and said, look, I've got this thing, why don't we, why don't we try it out? And we, we sat in the upper level of the recreation centre at the university, right. and I ran my first adventure there 
and the, the guys who who I inflicted it upon had no idea what was going on, <laughs> and it was pretty you know it was pretty sketchy and basic, and I think it was something about um, some running through some. Um, basic dungeon, fighting goblins and, and finding treasure, and that was it. Right. And how long did it take you to sort of see the possibilities of it, or did you immediately see the possibilities but were a little bit unsure of how to apply the rules? Um, I think after after I sort of got the gist of, of how to do this, I started putting stories, uh, backplots behind what was going on. Right. Um, and it just took a while to, to work out how to do that without um, without it overrunning the enjoyment of what was going on on the day. Because there's, there's an interesting thing that happens in role-playing where you've got the mix between the unfolding of the story and the experience of the players whose characters are developing and growing and changing and gaining levels and gaining skills and, and becoming heroic mm. in some fashion. Yeah, so you, you need to sort of... Uh, I know at certain times uh, most GMs fall into the trap of um, feeding experience to the players right. and, and letting them build these mega characters right. because it makes them so excited and so happy and you think you're doing a good job by doing that. Right. Uh, and then you get wonderful people like Mason yeah. who it's all about the story right. and, and who... You know the characters themselves. Um, it's the it's the unfolding story that is the important part of what's happening during a session. Right. Um, so yeah, there's 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 this two ends of the spectrum there, definitely. And so you began with Dungeons and Dragons, and then how long did you play that for? Um, well, after about three years, uh, my circle of friends expanded a bit further. And um, those friends were playing RuneQuest. Right. And I guess that was my next experience of a, a quite a different approach to how things ran because the D&D was all about, you know, you gain experience and then you get to a certain point where your character can make some sort of quantum jump from one state of capability to the next. Yes. In RuneQuest, it was all about, as you do something, there's a chance you might get better at it. Right. And so what year and, was this? Uh, that would have been 85. 85. Okay, so so they, you get a little bit better in RuneQuest rather than being quantum leaps? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And each skill, for the version of RuneQuest at that stage, each skill would have a chance of improving. And you'd probably work it out. At the end of each session, you'd keep a record of which skills you'd used, and then depending on... Um, how bad you were at uh, how bad you were at that skill, the worse you were, the more likely it was to improve. So, of course, you've got this law of diminishing returns, and when you got really good, it was a major thing to get that extra 1% on your, on your roll. Right. And so did you find that changed the way that your stories went, or by that stage did you feel it had a pretty good grip on this, the narrative element of the role-playing game? I don't think, I don't think systems really change the, how the story runs. Right. The, the system is, is something that, if you think about, um, I mean, if you look at the Magician series that Rami D. Feist wrote, hmm. I mean, th- those are, uh, to me, he's taken role-playing sessions and written them down. Right. Right? And so all of the things, you can spot who the main characters are, you can spot who the NPCs are, and it's, it's, just, it's just wonderful to read. I love it. Right. Um, 
So all, all of the, the system is running in the background, but we've got no idea what it was or, or how it ran or anything else. It's the story right. that's important. Right. Um, the thing that I found about systems is that when they became clunky, they would distract from the story. Right. So what would happen is you'd get people rolling all these thousands of dice. I mean, one of, one of my favorite campaigns I ever ran was under the Rollmaster system. Right. Um, spelled R-O-L-E, but should have been spelled R-O-L-L. Right, yes. Because you just, you just got tables and tables and tables and spend most of your time rolling the dice to work out what the hell's going on. Right, right. Um, yeah. And yeah. so after, Rollma- uh, after uh, sorry, RuneQuest, at about 1985, yep. you went to... Oh, look, we just went wild about them because there were all these new role-playing games coming out. There was um, Palladium... There was Traveller, there was um, Rollmaster, there was all sorts. And we basically, every time a new system came out, um, you know, Call of Cthulhu, which of course is a RuneQuest variant, right. um, all as each one came out, somebody would buy it and go, look, I've got this new one for us to try. And then we'd play that for a while until, you know, something else came along or we, we decided to go back to the old, fa- the old favourite of D&D. My role-playing career is, is similar but I've mentioned enough times now to not have to go too much into it. My first game that I played was Travel, and that was a disaster. And then I played Dungeons <laughs> and Dragons. And then from that, I played Middle Earth and Rollmaster. And then probably went for a f- a five or six or seven years, maybe, uh, where I didn't play anything at all. And then I was at Canterbury University, and I had. Um, I didn't. I played you know, football, soccer, perhaps to the American audience, um, and I didn't really do a whole lot of stuff outside of that for the first three years I was there. I think I was just in my uh, postgraduate work, and yeah. I went. To, I joined the uh, the Fug Sock, I think it was called, or I can't remember what it was called at that point. And I remember going to going up to the, the upper common room. Which is where the role playing um, the role playing group was, and I got involved in a game run by by Laurie, and it was Dungeons and Dragons, and I, I was playing it, and no reflection on Laurie, but more reflection on how I guess I'd changed as a as what I was looking for for a game. But I was playing Dungeons and Dragons, and it was just terrible, and I wasn't even going to go back the next week. So I went back the next week to see if uh, to, to play. I said, okay, well I'll give it one more I'll give it one more shot, and Laurie wasn't there because Laurie, yeah. for various reasons, it wasn't very reliable. Um, and there was this strange-looking chap with a with a long ponytail and uh, a purple book in front of him, craned over it. And I forget exactly how it was that I approached this chap, but he asked if I'd like to play mage. And I said, "Well, I don't really know anything about it, but sure, I'll I'll give it a go." And, and that was you. Do you remember that? I do remember that. Yeah, I do indeed. I just moved to Christchurch. I knew nobody there, and I thought to myself. I will go to the university and see if there's a role-playing club there right. and um, and just start off. Right. And I think it was, yeah, I mean, like you say, it was it was those those players. There was Mason, there was Yo, there was uh, Dean. And um, and we just started and it just, it just was, um, yeah, it really was about the storytelling and about the paradigm of the game. And everybody got to explore the paradigm of the game. And, and I think it was something a little bit different. And people got, I don't know, they, 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 
there was humour in that game as well. It was yeah, sure. it was funny. Yes, it was it funny, and um, I, <laughs> I can still remember one incident. Um, Dean at that stage was playing um, one of the sons of Ether, yes. and so they're sort of the mad scientists, and he was madder than most. Oh yeah, yeah. And after he had um, tried to suck skills out of the hermetic mage's head yes. and made him go bald yes. um, by doing that, yeah, yeah. Um, they realised that the that the bad guys were based down at one particular place, and, and um, so he built his equivalent to the Batmobile, and he spent ages, you know, building this amazing vehicle that could do all sorts of amazing stuff. Yeah. And then everybody piled into it, thinking, this is great, this is great. We t- they drove down to just outside where they, where they had to confront the bad guys. Yeah. He got out, parked the vehicle and walked in. <laughs> and all the rest of the players just looked at him like, what the hell's just happened? <laughs> it was just, it was just hilarious. I loved it. So that was just a car, yeah. It's, yeah. and I think that uh, would I have um, I've played with a whole bunch of different groups, and I think that there's something to be said for the synergy between the players, like the 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 mm. um, the sum of the parts being, uh, or what is it, the, the whole being greater than the sum of the parts, and. Um, I know that I felt a connection with the character that I played in that, which is a dream speaker, and I think that Mason perfectly cast himself, I suppose, as the hermetic mage, and Dean was brilliant as the, as the mad scientist. I think that, it, to a degree, it was an extension of, of ourselves, which I suppose all good characters are. There was one other chap playing at the start, that did, like Michael, I think, was his yep. name, and he just... And he was... A, I don't know if a power gamer is quite the right word, but I, th- <coughs> I think that mage appeals to a certain type of gamer where the rules are a little bit looser and you can't uh, you don't get a feeling for the game for the rules you've got to kind of play it and apply all the what what uh, white wolf was really was was particularly strong in which was their backstory like having all that super rich backstory and having it hanging all together um, created a certain type of story and that type of story wasn't for everyone i think you're probably right um Sort of dipping into the psychology of gamers, um, I think people come into gaming because it meets some need in their personality. Right. And that may be those who, especially for teenage um, guys, yeah. who are struggling to work out how the world works and how they fit into it and issues of power and control and responsibility and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, but then you've also got those for whom it's it's um, a creativity thing. Right. So you've got these people who are learning how to tell stories together and share and, and enjoy each other's company and all those sorts of things as well. Right. And I think that, that the direction that I led that game in yes. didn't fit with, uh, with certain kinds of investigation. Yes. Um, and so, yeah. So those guys just, uh, Michael just, he was like, no, 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 don't like this, I'm not, not into this. And it was like, oh, it's okay. Yeah, yeah, it's okay, yeah, see you later. Because yeah, there yeah. was, and, and are those, and I think that Mason and Dean and, and I, we were, were the only three that carried right through, right? There were some people that went through for, for some of the time, but was that um, having the dream speaker and the son of Ether and the hermetic mage, um, is that did that core sort of inform the type of story that you told, or did did, did it did the type of characters? Well, this is probably a larger question, so you can answer it as big or as small as you want. But do you think that the type of characters um, should influence the type of game, or is it on the is it part of the growth for the characters to adapt to their situation? I guess it depends what the um, 
what the GM, or I, I don't know how your listeners would describe what we used to call originally the dungeon master, yes. the games master, the storyteller. Yeah. I think White Wolf always called him the storyteller. Yeah, that's right. Um, it depends whether the storyteller is trying to engage the characters or the, the players, right. or whether the storyteller is trying to tell their story and the characters fit into that and, and are moulded by that. Right. Um, I know that in the Mage game, um, I had a, a, black, a basic plot line that was going to happen no matter what anybody did. The, the, right. the, the destiny was set and this was going to happen. Right. But each of the mages, because of their different paradigms, yes. that plot would unfold to them in a different way and with a different set of symbols and a different set of, um, of experiences. Right. And so um, I can remember there was one, one experience that um, the dream speaker had of having Bear dismember him Yes. Uh, in, as part of the experience of, right. of um, gaining more knowledge about enlightenment. Right, yes. Yep. Or ascension. Um, and, and so that was quite, to some degree, that was quite a traumatic experience and description. Yes, oh yeah, for sure. Because, because for, a, for a, um, a shaman from, from Lake Bacal, Yes. From um, from Russia, yes. that's the kind of experience they would have. It's all about life and death. It's all about mm. beginnings and endings. Yes. Um, the Hermetic Mage, um, it was all about puzzles. It was all about trying to unfold and always finding these these layers and layers and layers of new understanding about what was going on. And there was like a fractal effect going on. And at a certain point, Mason, you could just see he was like, "Will this will this ever end?" Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and for Dean, it was about, um, it was interesting because I thought he was going to get into the science side of things with his, with his son of ether. But what he wanted to get into was the art of science. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's the direction that he headed in. And once I realized the direction he was heading in, all of the plot would unfold in that way. Yes. Yeah. And I, and I guess that's, that's quite a battle for, for some storytellers to do, yes. um, and especially if you if you aren't widely read in, the, in different kinds of of, uh, of fiction, yes. you might not know what was going on or how to deal with it, and yes. so it's sort of something that comes with experience, really. Mm. That was one thing that uh, my previous guest had to say, which was that she wasn't didn't feel that she was ready to be a GM because she wasn't well enough read. Would, what advice would you have for somebody who uh, was going to prepare themselves for running an adventure in terms of, you know, how much reading is enough and how much reading is really too much? So like analysis paralysis type uh, thinking. <laughs> I, I reckon as long as you have a good grip on the paradigm of your story and you can say to the to the players, hey, look, this is the direction that we're going to go in. You know, I understand that you're, you're, you're drawn to this, but it's going to have to go in this direction. Right. And you do it outside of the game. Yeah. It's no problem. People understand. And yes. when they engage with your story, mm. they will enjoy themselves and they'll happily trundle along in the, in, the, in the vein that you need to express it. So although you may not need to be widely read, all you're doing is you're just narrowing the, the flavour of your story. Yeah. I mean, I, because I felt comfortable, I could make this thing as wide as possible. I think I mean, most people tell the White Wolf stories. Right they try and make sure that most of their players are one tradition. 
Right. So they're one type of mage or they're one type of vampire or they're one type of werewolf or they're one, you know, whatever. So that the story doesn't just branch out in all directions. Right. This is one of the one of the things that I used to find when I was running uh, the Rollmaster game is that I'd have six or seven players right. and they all wanted to go in a completely different direction. Right. And in game, they'd all be off in different areas doing different things. And so you had to hop from, okay, now it's time for this character's right. bit, and now it's time for this bit, and now it's time for this bit. And and that can become a real juggling match. Yeah. But that was a real testament, I think, to the way that you ran the game is because um, at no point did I get up, unless I was going to get something to eat past, but at no point did I want to get up and go away and miss any of the story because I know that we were we moved often in different directions. I mean, most people were pretty gracious and appreciating the fact that the most fun people would stay together. But I know that there were some sessions where almost nothing happened with all of us together. But as yeah. I say, that's sort of a testament to your storytelling skill in that you didn't want to leave and miss what was happening with the uh, with the other people. So, well, I mean, it, it's kind of like. Um when I when I read novels these days, I, I sometimes get really angry because the writer this there's a, this current flavour of having about eight or nine major characters, right. and you read a chapter and then you bounce to somebody else, and you read a chapter and you bounce to somebody else, and you read a chapter and you bounce to somebody else, and some of them can't carry that off, right. and there's not enough interest in each character, there's not enough fun stuff going on for each character for you to enjoy that, um, and what I tried to make sure is that each person was was having a good time mm-hmm. in this in their expression in the, in the their part of the story, mm-hmm. and that carries across because everybody else has a good time listening to that story. Then, right? Because I know that the um, there was a lot of scope for you to bring in, like for the for the individual characters to bring in elements, and you're happy to incorporate it. Like I know that uh, that Dean spent quite a bit of time. Um, putting together his his um, beat pot, which is his little robot that was a was a fireplace. That's all that I can remember about it. And he had Doctor Octobot, and he had uh, Hans yep. Schmidt. And I think that unlike any other game that I played before or after, the way that the story was told, with just the synergy between the people in the game um, and your direction, people came up with a lot of interesting stuff. To help flesh out their to help flesh out their characters, and as I say, mostly, I would say because of uh, because of your inspiration, or at least the way that you gave people the opportunity to explore their characters, is that uh, generally what happens in your games, or was that uh, some un, unreproducible synergy between the people that were there? Yeah, no, that that's sort of a flavour that that tends to drop into most of my games, and I think it's probably. Um, you know you're running a really good game when people come to you outside of the game and they say, I've been thinking about what so-and-so would do and blah, 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 blah. Right. And often they'll do that as a defense when something happened in the game they didn't think should have happened. They'll come back and they'll explain it to you why it shouldn't happen that way. Right. And, hell, if they come up with a good reason, I'm going to go back and replay that. Yeah, no sure. problem. Yeah, sure. Because um, that's that level of engagement of the player Hmm. is so fantastic because it means that the story has actually come to life. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. And it's engaged completely. And, and, um, so yeah, sometimes it, it, 
it takes quite a while for people in role playing to realize they could do that. Mm. And um, it was one of the questions that you had on the on the little list of questions that people ask is you know what's your what's your twenty second explanation of of role playing that you'd give to somebody in an elevator? Yeah, yeah. So what's your elevator pitch, including oh, an example of play? I'd say, um, have you ever sat watching a, a horror movie and they're walking down a corridor and they walk up to the door and you go, don't open it, don't open it. That's role-playing. Yeah. If you were that person, you wouldn't have opened it. You would have gone, this is a really bad idea. I'm going to go and look for a phone <laughs> or whatever, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm just going and, to leave this house altogether. I know, yeah. You know, there's the slime trail on the floor and it smells of the sea and mm-hmm. and I'm an in-switch, so I'm not going to open that door. Yeah. And that's that's what you talk about for me when I'm talking about role-playing. It's, it's interactive storytelling. Yes. And the dice and the system are, are just... That's part of the part of the mechanics of how you do this interactive storytelling. I was speaking with a chap by the name of Sean Nittner um, uh, earlier on this week, and one of the things that he said was that he felt that the ratio of player to GM to system was 40, 30, 30. It was somewhere in that vicinity. So if you were going to uh, put your own spin on the percentages, what would you say... GM, player, system? Well, it kind of depends on whether you're trying to entertain, right? in which case the GM takes a much higher role because they will really be be trying to provide everything. Right. Um, and then you basically get the series of entertainment blocks yes. as people play the game. Uh, if you want a campaign that sort of verges on the mythic where people remember it for years to come, yes. then it, it can be 50-50 and the system's unimportant. Right. I reckon the system's not an issue. The backstory, which from often comes from the system, yes. is really important. So in that case, you'd say, you know, uh, 33, 33, 34. Right. So- it's... You know, but but if the if the backstory comes from the storyteller, yes. and I mean an example would be um, people who play Empire of the Petal Throne, right? You know, because n- nobody understands that backstory unless they've read a lot of the, the the system. So when you first start, it's all coming from the storyteller, right? And then the, then it's it's I'm telling my part of the story, you're telling your part of the story. Right. And that's where the magic comes. Right. And if it doesn't work, then you've got a mix of a player and a, and a storyteller. They're just not going to work together. It's not going to be compatible. Right. Maybe they, you need a different kind of story or it's just that they don't work with you. And so, you know, it's that player goes and finds somebody else who runs the style of game that they want. Right. So... I described, I mean, White Wolf described themselves as a renaissance in, in gaming or a renaissance, and I said that for me it was a renaissance in gaming um, as well because it had been five or six years since I'd played that, and then when I went back and I played that Dungeons & Dragons, I thought, you know what, that's I'm, I'm just not interested in role-playing anymore. And then I played the Mage game, and then I, I suddenly picked everything back up again. And did you did it change the way that you played, or did you just feel that that system suddenly fitted you, or do you in fact not really feel that, that system is necessarily fits you, but that 
uh, the backstory just went along with the sort of stories you wanted to tell? Um, I think that um, when I found the Mage the Ascension game, it really fitted where I was at that time. The whole thing about the meta story, the, the, the metaphysics of the whole thing, the fact that there was multiple equally valid interpretations of the underlying reality. Yes. Um, and, and it was interesting because the, um, the technocracy had imposed their interpretation of reality on the world because the majority of the sleepers, the majority of the normal people, just believed it. And that, that enforced it in day-to-day life. Right. And there's some parallels there to my own experience of how every, the majority of people believed something to be true yes. and acted as if it was true. Yes. And at that stage, I was sort of in the process of, of questioning my own um, sexuality and whether I was a, um, a straight person or a gay person. Right. Or somewhere in and, what it all, and what did all that mean, you know? Mm-hmm. Yes. But here was the you know here, here was the the society telling me this is how the world is, right. and I'd cracked open the world and looked around the corner and seen something else. Right, that was a surprise. And in the in the other really good games that I've played, every single one of them, I've been able to say, well, this 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 mirrored my own personal development and growth at the same time, right. and I think the archetypes that I introduced in the story mm-hmm. were archetypes that I was wrestling with at the time, and so there was a lot of energy in that right. uh, experience, and it just it, it, it engaged with the players as well. Yeah, I think that anybody that's, um, even in a fiction setting, is dealing with the truth, it's automatically more, it's automatically more engaging. And yeah. so would you say that role-playing is cathartic in that respect? Oh, hugely. Absolutely. I mean, even even in um, in the same way that that doing counselling or, or psychoanalysis is cathartic. When you when you spend some time paying attention to something, it unfolds for you, right. and it becomes comprehensible. Right. So when I was in Wellington, uh, completely unbeknown to me, I was playing this um, campaign with all my friends, and I was storytelling it, where there was all this meta-story going on about um, this godlike being called the Burning Man who had been punished for doing something that he wasn't supposed to do um, and who was perpetually on fire but perpetually regenerating all the time, tormented all the time. Right. Okay, so here's this archetype of what's going on in my being, although I couldn't recognise it. And I'm telling people about the story. Right. And then um, there was a transformation on one of the last epi- uh, episodes of that that I ever played with the guys that were there, where the Burning Man was transformed into a phoenix-type redeemed creature. Right. You know, it was, the, it, was the, it was the apex of, like, five years' worth of campaign storytelling. Right. And that was just... That was just amazing for me. I mean, it was such a, a an experience of um, integrating stuff. So right. it was really good for me. Right. So um, if you had uh, so if you had advice for anybody in terms of um, 
mining your own experiences, would you say that's absolutely, would you say that's absolutely something worthwhile doing, or can you find yourself in deep water there? Oh, hell yeah, deep, deep, deep water. I mean, as I've just said, those things happened spontaneously. I didn't plan them. Right. They didn't come out that way, but when they came out, they made a story that absolutely captured the people who were playing it. Right. Because there was some deeper level of, of truth there. I think for some of the guys who were playing it, and of course it was mainly guys that played in the role-playing groups that I played in, there was, there was very few women playing at that stage, mm-hmm. um, it became very real for them. Right. And I think it became real for them because it was real for me. Yeah, oh yeah, for sure. I would be very hesitant to do, try and do this on purpose. Oh, yeah. I think it would be ugly yeah. um, because the finesse is not there. You're trying to force something out into the open that's not, it's only half baked, it's not ready to come out and be dealt with. Right. Um, no, nah, uh, it, it happens, and you can, you can look at your game and say, oh, I see where this thing's heading, that's really interesting. Oh, well, let's just, let's just continue and see where it goes. Right. But I would never force that sort of thing because I think, um, I think finesse and subtlety is really important in a good story. Right. Um, I mean, it's the difference between a story written by a 12-year-old and a story written by a 50-year-old. Right. You know, there's a complete difference between, um, you know, and then I hit him on the head with, a, with an axe and it was over. Right. And, and some story written by Poe where, you know, I, I think you know what I'm talking about. It's just, I, 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 would, uh, I would enjoy the experience, but I wouldn't necessarily expect it out of any story. Right. Um, and I certainly wouldn't try and force it. And on the flip side of that, would you try to, um, if you were aware of one of your players going through something, would you ever subtly put little breadcrumbs out and see if they followed the trail, if you felt like they were trying to work through something and they may perhaps get some catharsis of their own from uh, a death yeah. in the story? Yeah, I've done that in the past. I have done that in the past. Um, and uh, even even where one of my friends was, he was just impetuous, like he'd do really dumb things and he'd set himself up to, to bomb out. And at the end of one session... He was running through a, his character was running through it. It's interesting how you you start flicking into them being the character. You know, he was doing this. Anyway, the character was running down a, a, a dark passageway and decided, since they were an assassin, they'd set a trap there. And their words were, I'll set a trap there so if anybody runs down here without thinking, they'll get killed. <laughs> And we took a break for the holidays and we came back and something happened. And he went, oh, panic, panic, I'll run down as fast as I can. I said, so you're running down there without paying attention as fast as you can? And he went, yeah. <laughs> so, so, of course, the trap went off. And he was so angry with me yeah. for doing that. But it was just hilarious. It was just, you know, hey, you just walked into your own silliness. Your own, your own trap, right, absolutely. Yeah. Trip, tripping yourself up. So, yep. so you played uh, RuneQuest and then Rollmaster and then... You played Mage, and, and what have you played subsequently? Um, Hero Quest was one that I really enjoyed, um, and I actually played quite a bit in that one. Um, Craig and Richard were um, enjoyed playing that one, and so um, so did I. Um, it's the guys who wrote it were quite engaged with. Um, 
with The Hero with a Thousand Faces, the book written by Joseph Campbell, who's a sort of an anthropologist, sociologist, who's looked at the 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 uh, effect, the continuity of mythic stories in people's experiences in their lives and how the same stories come out in different cultures again and again and again, the, the hero quest. Right. And so this, this system was was based around people having those sorts of gaming experiences and it was it was just a hell of a lot of fun. Right. And then after Hero Quest Ah Well, I think probably the last game and I, and I, I mean I can't really remember all of the other ones in between. Um but the last one I played was another mage campaign right. uh with these friends of mine in Auckland and I did a I did a retelling of um, the biblical stories in Exodus, right. where all of the main characters were Egyptian mages right. who were trying to help the Israelites to get out of out of Egypt in one piece. Right. Um, and so, you know, there was all this stuff going on. You know, they discovered this terrible secret that one of the pre- one of the princes was actually not Egyptian and da 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 And uh, lots of experiences with, um, you know, spirits of the dead and dipping into the um, the, the Egyptian um, types of magic. Right. So I'd, I'd done quite a bit of sort of reading and studying and planning and stuff like that before I could pull that one off. But it went quite well. Um, it's, it was the second time I'd, I'd done that story. I did it for um, some of the guys in... Christchurch as well, and it was interesting because it just unfolded in a completely different way. Right. Um, and the reason that I, I bring up the most recent uh, role-playing experiences is because I think that I'm not sure if you were out to yourself um, when you ran the Mage game, um, or whether that happened sub- subsequently. Did you notice any difference in the way that you approached the game um, after you had not necessarily made that realization, but made peace with that realization? Well, the huge difference because um, and and I think I had been in Christchurch for about two or three years when I realised, oh, I had this epiphany. Oh, I'm gay, right. and you know, you you have this moment when you when you're sitting at your laboratory desk, pipetting something into a test tube, mm. and you as gaze you up into the, as you do into the corner of the room, and suddenly I saw my whole life stretch out in front of me, and all these little incidences that on their own you could go on, oh, you know, it's just this or it's just that, it's you know whatever. When it all comes together, it becomes obvious, and you go, ah, okay, I'm gay. Right. Which was very distressing for me at the time because I grew up in a religious family and I had been the paradigm that I'd grown up in was that that you only were gay if you chose to be or if you were um, somehow a bad person. Right. And I knew I wasn't. So this was this experience of of coming to terms with being gay was kind of a questioning of all of the foundations of my life, all of the things that I thought were going to happen or were true or were right or were good, and suddenly they were all up in the air and it was like, okay, I don't have a grip on this stuff at all. And it really did change the flavour of the games that I ran. Um, And I think I, I I definitely came out to the guys that we gamed with 
right. um, during the process. So, but I, but I don't think the game probably changed too much at that stage because most of the internal work had been done by then. Right, but and the, and the and the people that I gamed with, I mean, none of them gave a, a toss. They just, oh yeah, okay, Chris. Well, I'm sorry, but that doesn't really surprise us. We sort of expected that of you, and we 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 knew that for ages. And I'm like, ah, okay, yeah. good. So I've gone through something massive and and cathartic and whatever else, and you guys already knew it. So thanks for sharing, guys. <laughs> it's the, it's the strange thing is that oftentimes, um, or I mean, I've. Got a, I hate saying I've got gay friends because it it almost sounds like you're uh, you're ready to say something controversial. But um, <laughs> but, but but people that I've known that have come out in the time that I have known them, often it's been something that's not really been a surprise. And I often wondered whether that was whether as somebody coming out, you are quietly hoping that there's going to be like fireworks and a party thrown, you know, to, to recognize this amazing realization and whether somebody who's not as overcome perhaps, or doesn't have the, the sudden epiphany, like, yeah, all those things that Chris did, Chris did suddenly does make sense, whether it diminishes the importance of it, or is it actually reassuring in a lot of ways that even though you hadn't said it, people were accepting you exactly as you were regardless. Mm. Well, I mean, part of the paradigm that you're sold is that you are going to be rejected and that if you ever reveal your secret, people will realize you are unlovable. Right. So then you reveal your secret and people love you and you're like, okay, so this is more evidence for me to realize that the world is not the way I've been sold it mm. and my friends actually love me because of me yeah. and... They enjoy what we what we do together when we're when we're gaming, and I have value, and now I can just get on with my life. Right. And it's 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 not that you're expecting fireworks; it's that you're expecting rains of fire right. from the heavens, fire and brimstone, as it were. Right. And when that doesn't happen, it's like such a huge relief. Right. I mean, I was expecting to be disowned by my family, right? But I had to tell them. Like, I could keep living a lie or I could give them the opportunity to actually know who I was and actually love me. Right. And when I told them, if anything, they blamed themselves. Mm. And there was no blame or condemnation that came to me, which was completely unexpected. Like, I just... And, and that experience, that, that insight that the world is not necessarily how you will expect it to be... Yes. ...has really flavoured... The, the games that I have run probably for the last uh, 20 years. Right. Even before I really knew myself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And your des- the description is exactly the same as Trudy's description um, of what happened when she told her parents. She was expecting exactly the same reaction and got exactly the same reaction even though she was deathly afraid of the consequences that it would have so it's interesting how you that we are all sold that identical paradigm and have those identical expectations for what's going to happen once this what probably feels like a terrible secret is uh is revealed and and along those lines although not on the same level 
Um, for you, it's probably a lot easier, but I, I imagine, like, when somebody asks me what it is that uh, role-playing is, I find myself sort of squirming because I'm, in, I'm put in this position where I have to, eventually, it always gets to the point where I have to say, you know, like Dungeons and Dragons, <laughs> that's right, yeah. and then suddenly they understand, but the, but, you know, you, you don't get that terrible you don't get that wonderful feeling of validation you just get the the dead eyes okay all right yeah so we <laughs> i had a skills i had a wonderful experience i went to when i first moved to upper hut so i left auckland and my first job was in in near wellington in new zealand in upper hut and um I went to the local library and I went to the library and I said, oh, look, I'd like some information about, you know, clubs and societies. And she went, oh, yes, 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 what do you want to know? And I said, are there any fantasy role-playing clubs in Upper Hutt? And she just looked at me with this expression of contempt and she said, we don't do that sort of thing here. (laughs) And I knew what had happened and I said, you know, like Dungeons and Dragons. And suddenly her face lit up and she went, oh, Oh, yeah, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. But she thought I was into something very different. Yeah, exactly. That's a common, that's absolutely a common thread, that, that same, you, you say role-playing and they think you're weird in one way, and then you say Dungeons & Dragons and they think you're weird in a completely different way. <laughs> what I normally say to people is it's, it's, a, it's a style of interactive storytelling where one person runs the plot and the other people experience and talk about how characters in the story would be reacting so it's like a it's like a group story right right so i sort of avoid the whole dungeons and dragons thing these days completely yeah okay fair enough uh, i think probably there's not so much stigma now anyway because a lot of people play world of warcraft and and that sort of thing so they're fully with that quasi medieval milieu but um yeah i still yeah i still struggle i still feel like i've got this big confession to make and i and i do squirm a bit when people uh, when people ask me which is which is odd so looking uh, down my my little list here um oh no actually i had another question regarding mage and uh what do you think that, uh, or not specifically about mage, but do you think that um, that that's your game? Like you have, like people describe having one true love, um, you're like meeting your soulmate or something like that. Do you feel that people have soulmates in game form? Like is mage it for you? People change, you know. Um, there was one stage where Rollmaster was my game. Right. Uh, there was, now I would probably say it's Mage is my game. It's the one I enjoy running the most. Right. Um, it's just it that one sparkles with me. You know, it just fires my imagination. It's just it's just where I would want to be. Right. Um, but will that change in the future when some new ones become available and like and Victoria, you know, example. like Victoria for example? <laughs> I would say I absolutely have been thoroughly enjoying reading through it and holding my copy at the moment. Thank you so much for I was so chuffed to get this copy. Thank you so much. Oh, you're absolutely welcome. As I've yeah. said ad nauseum, you know, you're, like, you should see lots of bits in there which you can imagine coming out of your very own mouth, a lot of those. I know. I, I read, read some bits and I'm sort of grinning and going, yeah, 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 yeah. You got it, man. You got it. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's good. Um, so what's your favorite, aside from Victoria, of course, what's your favorite book or supplement? Well, I, I thought about this one long and hard because you had prompted me and let me know what was going to be asked. And it's actually an old Iron Crown Enterprises supplement for 
in the world of Lawmaster. It's called the Iron Wind. And it's it's part of the Rollmaster uh, series, but it's based on a on a on an alternate reality world called Kothea. Um, and it's where I ran probably the longest campaign that I ever ran. Um, and it's, it's, it's really interesting. Well, to me, it was a really interesting, um, mix of sort of Nordic cultures, uh, Vikings and, and that sort of thing. Um, and it just captured my imagination. Um, there were, there were, it was high fantasy. It was mythic. And there were these really big, dark forces moving around trying to snuff all existence and here you have these teeny tiny little characters getting involved in this big backstory and that just captured me big time that was that was probably where i really started to to get the feel for the big backstory that needs to run behind any good campaign which the characters never really impact on right Right, the stuff is going on, and it influences them, but they can't really do too much to influence it. Right. Okay. So, on the flip side of that, if you could cause one game or supplement to cease to exist, what would it be? Now, this doesn't necessarily mean you think that it's badly written. Um, it mm. could just be because it's wronged you in some random way. You know how you said, um, "Is there a game that is your soulmate that fits you?" Mm. There's one that's the equivalent of the woman with the really horrible laugh behind you at the cinema. Right. <laughs> the one that grates on every nerve. And it's Han. Oh, yes. Han, yeah. <laughs> I, call it, I call it grunge role-playing. Right. Okay. I mean, your listeners are going to have picked up by now that I'm, I'm a gamer who is into the archetypical stories, is into the mythological, is into the internal workings, is into the, all of that sort of cool stuff that, that, that flows out of the subconscious. Mm. Han is grunge role-playing, where you can spend an entire session being lost and dying of cold in a forest, <laughs> where your major skill is the ability to poorly fire a bow and that's it (laughs) and i just my life is too short to be playing that kind of game i just i just hated it so much and there were lots of lots of people in christchurch that kept trying to get me to play it and they they it became an ongoing joke yeah (laughs) come on chris we'll play some hard and i'm like i'm gonna go and buy some takeaways i'll see you finished so just going back to something you said earlier on then um how do you reconcile that with your opinion of the setting or the system being unimportant unimportant i guess i guess the thing with han is that it is an investigation of the to me, it was always an investigation of the hopelessness of life. Right. And I, I just don't want to investigate the hopelessness of life. <laughs> I don't think life is hopeless, and I certainly don't want to experience it that way. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, so for, for me, the premise of that story, the system was irrelevant. The premise of the story was unpalatable. Right. And do you think that's because you were um, did it have anything to do with where you were at the time you 
uh, read the story. I mean, because I, I agree. I think that a game where you're more likely to die of dysentery than you are <laughs> of being run through with a sword has missed the point of, of role-playing in some respects. But um, do you think it's where you're at when you meet a game? Because you said that was the case for Mage. Do you think it's also the case for Harm? Um, I think I think my personality doesn't match with harm, right. and I don't think that will ever change. Right. Um, when I was a, a wee kitty at primary school, um, one of our teachers read us a chapter a day of The Hobbit, right. and I was absolutely enchanted. This was the most wonderful thing I'd ever heard in my life, and I said to my teacher, has this author written any other books and she said well there's this thing called the lord of the rings she said but it's really not suitable for you <laughs> and i said can i can i can i get my hands on it and read it she said look if you're really serious about this i will loan you a copy at a time over the school holidays and you can read it and then when you're ready for the next one you can bring it to me and give it to me and and you know you'll work your way through the story so i would i can remember waking up in that school holidays and opening up the book and starting to devour the Lord of the Rings. And I loved that story so much. It was like suddenly the scales had fallen from my eyes and here was something wonderful going on in front of me. Mm -hmm. I devoured it in like a week right. and I took it to get the next one. Right. Rang her up, said, like, I'm coming together. She's like, oh, really? So then she didn't believe I'd read it. <laughs> she thought I was just, you know, pretending to have read it, whatever. So she quizzed me, and I was so excited. I was telling her all about what had happened and the characters and what Frodo had done and what Gandalf had done and this and that. And she, you know, she just couldn't believe that I'd actually sat down and read the whole book in a week. And did you even like so Tom then, Bombadil? Oh God, I loved Tom Bombadil. <laughs> I loved, I loved the way that he'd rescued them from the Whites. Right. Okay. Yeah. Sure. And the Whites was one of the most scary things I've ever read in my life. Right. Right up there with a wonderful scene out of Raymond E. Feist's book Fairy Tale, right? Which is the the the, the byline of it: Fairy Tale, no bedtime story. Okay. There's this wonderful scene in there where this this spider-like creature is crawling up the bed to reach out and grab the child. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's like something out of my childhood nightmares. It was fantastic. Um, so you're reading, but I book. think yeah, I think my personality is is uh, engaged, is in, in, enthused and enlivened and excited by these types of tales. Um, they, they point in a direction of experience that things like harm don't point in that direction. Right. And I, I, I'm not interested in going in that direction. Right. I'm interested in going in this direction. This is where my, my nature draws me in this direction. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think that if you try to tell a tale and that it would end up going in the direction that Han didn't have in mind anyway. So I suppose that just like um, actors could be typecast, would you say that no matter what system you had, you would tell a similar story? I don't know about a similar story, but I I'm definitely am typecast. Mm -hmm. I, I really enjoy high fantasy type stories. Right. When I say high fantasy, I mean, you know, you've got this big backstory going on, you've got the characters inter interacting with it, you've got the fact that each character is actually the hero figure. Right. Touching back to the hero with a thousand faces idea, you know. Right. And I think this is this is why um, 
in the in the games that I've run that have been really successful, the players um, valued it so much mm-hmm. because they were experiencing the hero quest themselves, right? And they were becoming more than they were, right? As opposed to less, if you're playing Han. <laughs> yeah, becoming compost. Yeah, if you it's, are. It's, yeah. yeah, it's interesting to play a game where you are more skillful than your character, which is almost never ever the case, except for if you're going to play Han. For sure. Maybe you've got slightly different skills, but you're worse at those skills than you are in your real everyday life. Yep. Yes, I totally buy it. So, and as a storyteller, you have to keep reminding. The, the players that your character doesn't know that your character doesn't know how to light a fire you can't just do it that's right you yeah. just have to be cold and yeah. lose constitution <laughs> sorry about that but that's just what they're all saying so i think i know this one if you could only be a player or a gm which would you choose ah gm absolutely absolutely uh, a player players being a player is wonderful um but being a gm is is supercharged on, on the same thing, yeah. Uh, in my you know my experience, yeah. that's just that's the way of it. I mean, it, it's interesting. I've I've always I've always wanted to write. I've always wanted to write novels, and what I discovered is that when I GM, that creative energy goes into that, yeah. and then I don't have any oomph to actually create other stories. Yeah. You've only got a certain amount of energy that you can apply, yeah. and when I'm role playing, it all flows into that. Yes. Um, and now I'm, because it's been a a wee while, I've got all of these ideas flying around in my head and I'm getting to the point where I'm thinking, okay, I need to start writing. So I'm thinking that that's one of the things, one of the reasons why I'm kind of unsure about taking up role-playing again, just the fact that I haven't got enough time in my life anyway, but also because I actually want to move on to writing um, something that that I might be able to publish. Yes. Uh, And I I firmly believe I won't be able to do that if I take up role-playing again. Yeah. You mentioned that you you couldn't really divert your... um, That is, you couldn't uh, get a book written at the same time as you're pouring that creative energy into uh, into writing a book. And I know that, um, into writing a game, sorry. And what I found when I was writing Victoria is I didn't want to read anything else because anything else that I read would impinge upon subconsciously even what I was putting into the game itself. So it must be about three years or so since I've, since I've read any role-playing books. And I have got this stack of role-playing books here that I haven't actually opened. I got a, a book in the post the other day, uh, Ghost of Albion, Tim Brennan, and I I want to I wanna open it and I want to read it, but I still feel like I've got more stories to tell or more game to to create along the lines of Victoria, and I'm afraid that as soon as I start cracking into other things, it's going to sap away my desire to write because if I feel that I'm in any way replicating something that somebody else has done I'm going to not do it so I've, I've got all these books, these role playing books that are dedicated to the Victorian era and I haven't read any of them because I, because I don't want to feel like I'm reproducing something that somebody else has done. And, Absolutely. And I know that that's irrational in a way because, I mean, some people say there are only six different stories that you can tell and everything is a variation on a story that's already been been told. But I, I, 
I firmly believe that while that's true, the reason why we keep reading books that are essentially crime fiction procedurals is that we grow uh, or we fall in love with or we empathise with or we hate or we have some response to specific characters and everybody is a unique snowflake as they say but I think that's particularly true when it comes to to fiction that it's really the characters that are going to drive the story and I can see why if you tell that character's story in a role-playing game you would not feel compelled to tell that character's story or NPC story in a work of fiction. Uh, I, I absolutely concur with what you're saying. I mean, you, the the what you're trying to do is you're trying to express your story, and if you if you open yourself to somebody else's story, it infects the clarity of your own story, and it can't help but sort of when weasel its way in there and flavour it. So you really have to protect it quite carefully. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, that's one of the, that's one of the, the theories or storylines in Mage is when you have a paradigm, you can't let other people know what it is because they'll challenge it and then you'll lose connection with your own paradigm. Yeah. So the Mages had this, have this, you know, the phrase to will to, Dare, to will to know, to dare to be silent. Mm. Meaning you develop your own paradigm until you're strong enough. And the same thing happens with stories. You develop your own story until it's strong enough to survive and then you can present it out to the rest of the world. Right. If you do it too early, um, it will be stunt, a stunted, incapable of, of surviving on its, on its own without you looking after it. Yeah, and that's one of the things that the piece of advice is that piece of pieces of advice that writers give is don't talk about your story till it's finished. Yeah. Because like you say, people will ask questions about it or bring things up that you perhaps hadn't uh, considered. Writing a role playing game is a little bit different in some respects because you actually have to get people to have a go with the system to see if there are any any holes in it. And so yep. I was really like I was really conscious of that fact. So I made sure that I sent the mechanic to Richard, which is a mutual friend of Chris and mine, because if there's anybody out there that'll find a way that a game is broken and how you could exploit it, it'll be Richard. But at the same time, he would never, ever exploit it. He would notice it, and then he would immediately go in the completely opposite direction to make sure that he didn't use it. Yeah, he'd make a point of the fact that, 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 okay, you've got a flaw here, but because I want to run a character that only has one leg, I'm going to go in this direction. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Having two legs <laughs> seems like it's going to be too, too much of an advantage. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So that was one of the things that I did. I, I saw well, I can do a whole lot of playtests. And I did perhaps not as much as some other people have done, but um, I wanted to give it to Richard because for whatever reason he's got – like if you want to play a board game and you want to win, don't play with Richard. You'll be completely happy. If he do, if he does beat you, like I mean, I like when I play board games. Everybody likes to win, but you always feel yep. a little bit unhappy if you don't win. If your plans didn't come off in some way, if you had a good time anyway, uh, like in role playing, it's not quite the same thing. But in a board game, if you don't win, you don't win. Um, yep. But losing to Richard is always a is always a pleasure because it makes the times when you perhaps actually can beat him all the sweeter. And I don't think yep. there's been many times that I ever have. But in terms of having the right type of mind to analyze a system, you know that's. Uh, 
that's somebody that you want to have around looking at your games, so somebody yep. who's really good with board games or somebody who has just got that type of mind, for, for sure. I mean, we all have our different um, strengths and weaknesses, and when you're – this is something that was really good for, um, for the number of players in a game is that you want to have something of a mix of different kinds of personalities in the game. Yes. Because they're all going to bring a different flavour, and, and otherwise you get a game that sort of has the sameness about it. Like every character goes in the same direction and does the same things, and they're all little carbon copies of each other. Right. Um, so yeah, now it was always it was always quite interesting playing with um, the guys in Christchurch because we had a really cool mix of people. So in that case, would you be likely to tell a very similar story if you were to change the system, change the background, but had the same players? Are people capable of going, or are players capable of going enough outside type to create a completely different uh, Some people can't. Some people can't. There's, 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 um, there's one friend who every single game he plays, he's the same character. Right. And you know what you're getting. And so you let him, you let him experience what he wants out of the game and he's happy. Right. And everybody else plays the story. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. Um, I I would hope that it would depend on the story because the, although a person may react one way to one story, when you're telling a different story, like a, um, a high fantasy story is completely different from Call of Cthulhu. Right. So you're playing Call of Cthulhu, you're going to get a different reaction out of people. Yeah, and that's that's where the fun comes from, right? So in that respect, it may be that the system itself comes back in a little bit and helps to push role playing in a certain direction. I I I don't know about the system, the backstory, the backstory, okay, the the paradigm of the world. I was thinking and specifically that, about sanity in Cthulhu and your desire to preserve it may inform the way that you play the game. The mechanic informs the and the mechanic informs the role playing, even though the role-playing is of a character that has no concept of a sanity score. Yeah. My experience with Call of Cthulhu has been that, that sanity is something that, that, that changes the way you might play when you become less and less sane, mm. um, but it doesn't change how people choose to play their character. Right. Because they really are quite good at separating that, that um, player-character divide. Right, and so you've got the you know you've got the the army doctor who completely refuses to accept there might be other stuff going on, and they're happily going to go out there and lose all their sanity mm-hmm. um, because they could do no other. Right, and and it's quite interesting because some people have that have that experience of enjoying watching a car crash happen. Yeah, yeah. and they know their character's going to crash and burn, and they watch it happening. And they feel happy about it, <laughs> which is kind of sick and strange. But at the same time, yeah. it's like um, it's it's kind of like um, I think I sent you an email a little while ago talking about role playing as a morality play. Yes, uh, the interactive story being a morality play. And for some people, that's what it is. They're they're testing out ways of living mm. and behaviours in the role playing setting where it's safe to do so. Right. And then looking at the results and thinking, oh shit, you know, I, you know, at some on some level they may, may not actually think it, but they think, ah, oh, I'm not going to do anything like that. Right. So, have you played with other 
um, people that are openly gay? And does that make the story different? The reason I, I bring it up is um, because you had mentioned about uh, people, you have this duality where you've got your player and you've got your character. And if you are not necessarily an experienced role player, but if you're somebody who is um, comfortable with the idea of you're not your character, mm. um, does that, does if you're playing with like, uh, say somebody who is gay or maybe doesn't know they're gay or is in the process of making that realisation, as, as somebody who's out themselves, do you notice people playing out those those things and you start to start to question I think I think very interesting questions Um, and there is a difference and it's more about how restricted most people are in their responses based on their expectations of of the of the what's appropriate for them to do or be or behave Mm -hmm. and so what I found is when I've gamed with with people who are um, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, they don't buy into what's right and wrong in our culture so strongly right. because they've already found that it's wrong once. Mm. And so they're more likely to express things in their role-playing that other gamers wouldn't because they're just not comfortable with it. Right. Um, so <laughs> I can remember um, one of these one of these mage games where uh, one of the guys was the equivalent of a dream speaker, but he was busy having visions of the gods and 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 oneness and everything was holy and everything was wonderful and he spent <laughs> he spent some time living underneath the camel. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, Why not? You know, it's, it's a messy place. Time living under camels. It's a messy place to live because there's an awful lot of camel pee coming down on you all the time. But he was, you know, there was this interesting dichotomy between the character experiencing the holiness and the oneness of this experience, <laughs> and all of the other players going, "Oh my god, what the hell?" <laughs> yeah. Is so I'm um, the camel. Again, under the camel. He always ends up under the camel when he has an epiphany. Um, yeah, so uh, you do find that um, that people play differently depending on their life experiences. And people who've gone through the process of coming to terms with coming out, um, it may be a generational thing as well because these days, these days, God, that makes me sound old. Anyway, these days... Uh, it's it's often not such an issue for youth mm. because it's something that people are more open to. Right. Uh, and so it's not such a big life-changing event as it was for me. Sure. Uh, and for people of my generation. So, yeah. It seems that having a gay friend is cool. And, you know, to show to, it shows that you're progressive or in the now and you're very accepting of everyone. But is it easier for people that are actually being that friend who's gay to come out? No, well, it's interesting because I think at, at, at its base, the experience is about the death of the way you thought your life was going to be. Right. 
So you had grown up expecting that you would one day get married and you would have children and you would live this kind of life. Hmm. And everyone around you had those expectations too. And then it comes to a point where you realize your life is not going to be like that, that that's not the way the world is. And there's a grieving process and there's a, there's a death to be experienced at that stage. Hmm. And I don't think that changes for most people. Some, you say to some, uh, some gay men say to me, um, I've always known and I've always been comfortable with it. Well, I think they're in the minority. Yes. I think most people's experience is that they have an epiphany at some stage where they realize, actually, the world's not the way I thought it was going to be, and it's like this, and you go through a grieving process, and that's part of that, that coming out. Yeah. Um, and for some people, that's, that's not, they don't actually have that experience until their parents die. Right. Because it's kind of like the same experience. The, you all, deep down inside, you think your parents are always going to be there with you. They're always going to be there for you. Mm. And then the universe comes along with this nasty wake-up call and suddenly you have to reevaluate the universe. Right. It's that same kind of experience. Right. I guess it's kind of richness of life as well. I mean, you, you, you might think that, um, that gay people approach the world in a different way, but I think they've just had a few more experiences, intense experiences that other people haven't had at that stage in their life. Right. A lot of people can, can happily drift through their lives until their lives are over right. um, without having had some kind of uh, cataclysmic experience in their life. Right. But, I mean, you just need to talk to some of the people in Christchurch at the moment now where mm. they're having daily aftershocks from the earthquakes and mm. everybody knows somebody who died in the earthquakes. Right. Um, that's changed Christchurch. Yes. And it's woken a lot of people up to the fact mm. the world's not the way they thought it was going to be. Yeah, temporary. So if you do you have any advice for somebody who is um well first of all, let's go from the perspective of somebody who is a player who mm-hmm. is um is gay or is maybe is not or we just say gay, uh, lesbian uh, transsexual, bigender, and you put questioning in there now too, don't you? Is that one of the? Yep. <laughs> um, what would you? What advice would you have for for them? I don't necessarily mean in terms of coming out to their group, but things or areas that they could perhaps explore in a more safe environment through their characters. It's it's that's hugely complicated question, and and not one that I would ever want to give advice that was general. Sure, absolutely. Really, because yep. because people could make a real mess, mm. and they could they could end up um, alienating their friends mm. or whatever. You know, it's. Sure. I, I guess um, enjoy yourself and just see what comes out. Right. That's that's what it really has to be, and and whatever is whatever comes out of your mouth, mm. uh, listen to it because it's going to give you insights. It's a little bit like um, I said to somebody that role-playing is like a waking dream. Mm. And in the same way that dreams can help you to interpret what's going on in your inner landscape and what's going on in your life, um, what comes out of your mouth in role-playing does the same thing. Right. And the way your character behaves, because you're not consciously editing all the time, mm. 
often what will come out is a little insight into what's going on. So the, the flip side of that question is for a GM, I'm certainly on the same page as you in terms of you don't want to try and push in or delve into somebody's um, personal life at the gaming table. That's not, that's not the spot for it. But are there any things that GMs can do um, just in general? I mean, whether they're aware of gay people in the games or not, things that come up in games that uh, people who are gay may find particularly um, difficult to deal with or... Uh, like the example I give is with girls in games having all the NPCs coming onto their female characters. You know, so just like in real life, now here's the same, uh, the same shit that I've got to deal with. We've got guys in the game coming onto my female character, and I've also got this happening in in real life from time to time. Is there any, um, is there any analogy that you can make there between what might be just uh, might be difficult or not very unpleasant for a for a, a gay person to in, to endure during a role-playing game? Well, it's kind of life, really, isn't it? I mean, um, I, if it were me, there's certain behaviours. I mean, when, when I run my games, I tend to let the players know that there are greater powers than themselves at play, and certain behaviours bring consequences. Um... I know that sometimes, and I've been in game situations where somebody has been playing their character and has vented some particularly homophobic or nasty comment or whatever else. Mm. And uh, and you sort of think to yourself, well, what do I do? Mm. Do I just do I just let the story flow or, or do I, what do I do? And you think to yourself, well, how does that fit with our story? Right. And, and sometimes things come from out of the blue and there, and you can just see it rock people back and they think, you know, where did that come from? That's a particularly horrid piece of nastiness that just came out of my friend's mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, in a mature group of friends, it's not really a problem. In a group of, of casual, uh, I don't really know you people, it can be um, off-putting for somebody who's who's closeted or who's, hasn't told all the group or is just not too sure of their standing. Right. Um, and I think that's part of the responsibility of the, of the storyteller is to make sure that the um, the people are enjoying themselves and if that's not going to allow... If, if that could... If that's happening it's not going to be enjoyable for that person so you might want to intervene for sure i mean i think that general courtesy transcends any type of player that you might have at the table whether they be you know christian muslim gay you know they've got a fetish about um squashing insects it's all irrelevant uh and when you look at it through the, the bigger picture which is you want to make sure that the people in your game are having a good time yeah and and as a player or as a GM, you want to try and steer away from those stereotypes. If yeah. you are being yourself, like if you are making a, a an observation of an NPC, you wouldn't say, well, this NPC is kind of dressed up sort of faggy. You might no. want to say... You, this this NPC is dressed very flamboyantly. You know they've got they've taken great care with this, that, or the other thing. But if you are using the words of somebody who you're trying to generate. Um, a feeling for the type of NPC that they are, rather than describing them in the third person, you are being the person, 
how do you, what sort of responsibility do you have then? Or do you, is your responsibility only to the story? Well, interesting question, responsibility. I mean, who assigns responsibility? Do you have responsibility? No, sure. Um, I, I would say, hey, I want, my, I want my friends to have a good time. Um, all of the other stuff that we've talked about, about uh, investigating the internal architecture of, of your experiences and all those sorts of things, that sometimes happens. It sometimes doesn't. Um, if I am running a game and I've got an NPC who's uh, a neo-Nazi, homophobic, killer of children and small furry animals, I'm going pl- to express that character to the players. But they will know that it's it's part of the story, yeah. and they're allowed to hate that person. Mm, the mm. difficulty comes when one player wants to hate the other player. Yeah, sure. And um, and uh, you know, I, as you say, common courtesy, I'd probably shut it down. Yeah, for sure, absolutely. You know, there's nothing like having your tongue cut out to stop your character from saying things. <laughs> yes, that's true. Um, so going on to something a little bit lighter, um, what do you think is the uh, what do you think is the perfect uh, number of people in a role playing game? Um, I think the storyteller and four others. I think that's enough to really get some cool stuff going on. When you get to five others, it starts there starts being a real break in the story to to hop to diff- what different people are doing. Um, so yeah, four four main characters and the storyteller is, in my opinion, the best. Right, I'm I'm on the I'm on the one uh, storyteller and three players because I feel if you've got two sets of two, that's where you're going to get the you're going to start getting two stories being told. Mm. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but mm. if you're trying to sort of build some tension and you're trying to, I mean, you've got the advantage of the cliffhanger and stuff as well, I suppose, but I, I routinely play with four players, so it's not something I'm unfamiliar with, but I like the dynamic that three players bring. But going back to a game that you and Richard and I played, um, yeah. where I was running the, the Project Twilight game, which I've said a number of times is absolutely my favourite supplement and my favourite um, uh, set of backstory and game, period. Like, there's nothing that I like as much as that, apart from Victoria, of course. Um, of course. Um and I felt that that game really... Everybody likes their own children best. <laughs> of course. Um, the um, the dynamic of two people when you were sort of like buddy cops, but Fox Mulder, I mean, Fox Mulder, Fox Mulder, because you're both guys, but that sort of buddy cop, but in a dark, a darker setting, that seemed to, that for me anyway, like having two players in that instance, worked quite, seemed to work quite well. Yeah. At least I felt that it did. Um, yeah. Do you... F- do you think that that's too much? Does it really depend on who you've got? Is it too much pressure to go to volley back and forth between two guys like you're on too much? Have you ever tried to run with two? Oh yeah, I've I've, I've run games with one. Oh wow, that's no, no worries. No really? Yeah, I've not. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You can have a lot of you can have a lot of fun in doing that. There's an awful lot of um, pressure on the storyteller to provide. NPC interaction there, whereas the two characters could talk to each other, yeah, and so it yeah. takes a bit of pressure off you. Yeah. But it really depends on the um, on the players yeah. and on their skill and on uh, their experience and all that sort of stuff. Sure. Um, yeah, there's there's the, if there's one thing I've learned, there's no hard and fast rules. Oh, of course, no, no. 
on any of this stuff. So you get a couple of amazing players, mm. and the the three person game is just glorious. Yes, yeah. And I find I find myself with the fewer people that there are in the game, I sometimes find myself in the situation of playing two or say even three NPCs that are having a conversation. And that's the that's my weirdest experiences in role playing, where I'm playing everybody in the scene and I'm having to do the different voices. And I and I found I've caught myself in a situation where I have to vocalise that and I can't just sort of sum it up. And I realise that I'm talking to myself and the players are just sort of sitting there watching. It's just. <laughs> which is a, a bizarre experience, um, yeah. to, say, to say the least. Yeah. So, should GMs fudge roles? Hell yes, no doubt at all. Yeah. I mean, um, it, it, to me, it's the story that's important, mm. and the mechanics of the story are there to help you. Yes. They're to help. They're to help you work out whether something would be successful or not, whether an action is 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 going to work or not. Um, and if my sense of artistic aesthetic say it should happen, then it's going to happen. Mm. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm the rules the rules fly out the window when you've got a good plot development. You're <laughs> off. You're often laughing. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, I'm. I'm not quite this, to the same edge as you are. I think the mechanic that I have in Victoria, I, I introduced those plot points for exactly that reason, where I want people to be able to control, like to supersede the value of the dice, but not to have complete control over Because I find that dice sometimes force me as a GM to um, come up with creative solutions to to stuff that's happened. And sometimes completely unexpected and better things yeah. happen as a result of an unexpected dice roll. So I didn't want to completely eliminate it. But at the same time, I'm with you when you've got the story going and everybody's having a good time, and then you go ahead and let all the air out with a, uh, with a roll, you know, it, I don't think that anybody wins there. I got a really good example of this in the in the in the Rollmaster game that I ran in Wellington. Um, one of the characters it was a, a young guy playing a dwarven woman, yeah. Uh, and yeah, as you do. <laughs> anyway, so so as with all young men who are playing dwarven women, he decided he'd take take her to a bar and do a bit of flirting and and take her to bed with somebody. Right. So at, the, at that stage, I'm thinking, oh, this is this is bloody typical adolescent behaviour. And I said, okay, well, you do realise that you've got a percentage chance that you'll fall pregnant from this activity. Right. And he's like, oh, yeah, how likely is that? I said, oh, I think there's a 3% chance that it'll happen. So you've got to roll your dice and see what you get. And he rolled an 01. Right, good. <laughs> and I looked at him and suddenly the whole story unfolded and I went, Twins. <laughs> Critical failure. Twins. And a whole story arc opened about the fact that this person who wasn't a natural person in that world, who was a, a what, what in that game was called an outsider, so a, a player, in the game we had the storyline that a, a portion of your soul had been snipped off and, and thrown into this character in this world that was being run by the evil GM. Right. Uh, and so because he wasn't a normal person, um, every time he cast any magic, and he was a magic user, he was a cleric, mm -hmm. um, the babies would be affected. 
by the spell that he cast. Right. So suddenly there was this complication going on. So he needed desperately to use the magic that he had, but he was frightened to do it because it could affect the unborn children. Right. So you'd advise women not only to give up drink, drugs, and smoking, you'd also advise them to give up magic? Especially necromancy. <laughs> Yes, especially <laughs> if if you ever read any of Sherry S. Tepper's books about the um, the true game, the uh, Junian Footseer is a is a wizard, and at one stage um, they say, um, "Be careful! You really shouldn't do summonings when you're pregnant because the child can never banish the thing you've summoned." Right. And so the door will always be open and you'll end up giving birth to something that looks like a fish. <laughs> always. <laughs> yeah, which is probably where the whole Innsmouth thing came from. Right, yeah. <laughs> so would you say that um, you're a super prepared GM or free form? And which do you prefer as a player? Two-part question. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I daydream the story. That's how I prepare it's like I, I, I imagine various outcomes and things that could happen and I replay the scenes in my head. And I, that's my form of preparing is that I pre-experience it before I actually run the, run the session. When it goes off on a tangent that I haven't thought about, then you have to do that on the fly and you've got to be ready for it. So I think that you need to be able to do both. Sure. If you're incredibly pre-prepared and you're forcing your players to play along that line, then they've got no freedom to develop the plot, and they're part of developing the plot. Certainly. Um, so you do have to do a certain amount of preparation. And for me, um, I used to prepare when I was biking to work. Right. You know, every day you'd bike for, I'd bike for 20 minutes to work and 20 minutes back, and that was 40 minutes preparation every day and then I'd write down a few ideas that I'd come up with during that time. And it's just sort of like daydreaming. You're thinking about the story and how it would develop and that sort of stuff. So along with using your imagination, um, what would you uh, say was the best and or most inspiring film for role-playing? You could also choose television programs. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'd, I'd probably come back to one of two, probably Highlander for me, um, because it's your, it's your quintessential hero quest. You've got this dumb bumpkin that doesn't know what the hell's going on and the wise old advisor turns up and explains to him that he's special and then he learns to develop his powers and then he's in an epic battle for the whole of the universe. Mm -hmm. um, and then in the end, good triumphs and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Good story. A bit, bit dated, a little bit dated. Great sword fight scenes, love yeah. that. yeah. Love the Kurgan, great enemy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that, that sort of, that's, uh, for me, a really good example of your basic hero quest and, and the ingredients that you would want to have in your story in order to engage people well. I think then I'd probably be looking at something like Dune, the movie, yeah. for something that's got the most wonderfully intricate back plot and all this stuff going on in the background, you know, the the Benny Gesserit witches doing all the stuff in the background, the Fremen doing a one thing and the, the guilds doing something else. And, mm. uh, you know, everybody's busy running their own plot, as it were. Mm. Yeah, those two, I'd say. Yeah, it's interesting you should say that um, 
the Highlander was your your favourite or your most inspiring film because that Chris I've not answered this question before I've I've answered some of them before of, for myself but that's absolutely the film that I had in mind as well that Highlander was the most inspiring film for uh, for role playing and I to this day I've never watched anything other than Highlander one because I'd heard bad things about <laughs> two and three and I did not want to interfere with any of the any of the sort of the setting or the mythos or any of the yep. the rules that went into making that uh that, that made that movie so so awesome for me and, and that's just i choose the same film yeah you know you know how um they say a trapped animal would chew its leg off to escape a trap yes you will do that if you try and watch number two <laughs> it was it was a horror it was just a horror i couldn't believe they did that to the anyway and you couldn't what, what, what it hollywood will do to make money yeah but you couldn't unwatch it either that's the thing right no it's yeah. seared into my mind. <laughs> and does it affect your appreciation of the first one? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sad that. Yeah, I'm pleased that I haven't, I haven't fallen into that particular trap. So um, if you could become a character in a role-playing game, what would it be? And that's as in you actually became the person in the role-playing game. Um, so rather, than you could play, rather than you could play anything, you actually, Chris Bailey, suddenly became... Fox yep. Mulder in an FBI game, or yep. Um, mm, mm. Well, it'd have to be a mage game because that that's still my my game, uh, and I think I would probably become a celestial chorister in that. Uh, and yeah, that would be that would be the paradigm that I would fit into probably. Right. Do you, did you have the? I haven't fully finished it because I just can't stomach it. But did you look at the new version of Mage? Yes. And you did like the the the, the, water, the watered down and degendered version, as I, it were. Yeah. It's, the one where they cut its testicles off yeah. and turned it into something that actually wouldn't be able to um, to do the stuff that it used to do. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that was part of the charm of the original game is that it was a little bit fuzzy around the edges, but probably intentionally so, right? Oh, yeah. But, but I mean, the, the thing was is that the whole, the whole background of the game, it was hmm. reality is perceived in a certain way, but really it's formless and anything can happen. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the world is open. And, I mean, there's this wonderful line in the mage, the first mage book, and it's, it, it's a confrontation between a mage and an elder vampire, and the vampires, you know, I am an elder vampire. I have lived for 2,000 years. I had the powers to move beyond the speed of thought, and I can do this, and I can do that, and whatever. And the mage goes, you are a lawn chair. <laughs> yeah. Pop. <laughs> yeah. And that, was, and that was it. If, you could, if, if it could work through your paradigm, then it, 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 um, it could be done. Right. And what they've done is they've turned the whole thing into a watered-down rules created, I know certain spells, I know certain ways of doing stuff. Mm. Um, I've got certain skills, basically. I've, got, I've bought myself a gun. Yes. You know, I've, got, I've got this spell, I've got this thing, I've got this thing, and it's just take, for me, it took all of the real magic out of mage. Yeah, yeah, I, I, absolutely. And that was, to me, I haven't had, as I said before, I didn't have the misfortune to watch Highlander 2, but... Um, did you feel that it detracted from the original game, or are you able to completely set it aside? Oh, they're two different games to me. They're, they're not even... I mean, what is it? The, in the, the new paradigm in this one is that you're actually descendants of, 
old wizards from um, Atlantis. Atlantis. Yes, yeah, that's what I mean, kind of like. I mean, what's that got to do with the first game? Nothing. Yeah, yeah. It's, just, it's, it's a completely, it's another game, and I, I refuse to consider them in the same sentence, really. Yeah. The reason that I brought it up is because I had heard that the, that the Highlanders were all, this one well, Highlanders, sorry, all the immortals were descended from aliens, and I got that same sort of vibe from it, where it had changed yeah. the, the, the essence of it. So are you looking forward to Mage 20th anniversary? Um, not particularly. I'm interested to know how that's going to go. Like, uh, you, you may, not, may not necessarily have your ear to the ground on these ones, but um, they released Vampire 20th Edition, and cool. it sold well enough that they're going to release Werewolf 20th Edition. And then if that sells well enough, then they'll release Mage 20th Edition. I doubt they're going to get to Wraith 20th Edition, but... Nah. Um, but it's um, but yes, yeah, so I'm interested to see how it goes because the I haven't read a lot about it, but my understanding is that the new vampire is like the old vampire. So I'm wondering if the new mage will be will be like, like the old one. like the old well, mage, but but maybe better. Who, who well, knows? I'll definitely be watching with great interest then because um, if it's anything like the old one, then I'll start collecting stuff again. Yeah, yeah. Um, although I, I think I kind of got to the point where I had I had enough background that anything they put out was just more of the same hmm. you know I didn't, I didn't need the supplements and stuff they put out so it didn't matter yeah I'm looking at um, my shelf at the moment and I can actually see my major books lined up with little numbers on the back and I think that I lost I think the last book that I seriously read and considered was the technocracy um, the technocracy book and I think after that like I didn't get into the, the uh, books that supported the end of days sort of uh, for all of the lines, I, I got really angry with White Wolf because for me, what what they were doing was that they realised they they needed to restart everything so they could sell more books. Yeah, yeah. And and what they'd done is they'd completed the game. Yes. It was elegant and it was beautiful and it did everything it needed to do. Yeah. And they basically went, okay, we're going to scrap this now and start again. Otherwise, we can't sell anything. Yeah, yeah. It's a shame. And that just yeah. that just pissed me off. Yeah, that's where where you know, finance overcomes, you know, artistry, I yeah. suppose. I mean, and that happens a lot. There's very few artists that can stand up and say whether well, they're just going to go out at the top of their game, so to speak. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so I'm, I'll cautiously be optimistic about Mage 20th edition, but, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to hold Well, I've, I found it interesting in looking at the White Wolf games. I mean, Vampire was the first one that came out, and it was, it, it sort of, Lander on the coattails of Anne Rice's Vampire the Start and, and those stories and, and, and basically it was a it was a mechanic to play those stories. Hmm. Um, Werewolf they had expressed a paradigm for the story which sort of led in the direction of everything's gonna fail. Yeah. And Mage, they created one which was going in the opposite direction. Yep. Where your mages are actually seeking um, enlightenment and ascension, right? And yes, there was all of these battles going on, but there was hope. Yes. And then, um, changeling, it, it was another. Let's go into depression. And then wraith was like, oh my god, really depression. And it was like mage was almost the only book, the, the only part of that thing that didn't fit in with their worldview, right? So they had to nobble it and turn it back into the world view. Mm, yeah, sure. Yeah, I hadn't really yeah. considered it like that, but I think you're. I think you're right. The uh, 
the whole thing was having that tenth sphere and ascending and all that sort of thing, and that's just absolutely not what happened, even though that was sort of the setup. So, yes, mm. sad in some respects, but hey, you can pretend it never happened and just play the first, uh, just play the first edition anyway. Yeah. Um, so earlier on, we were talking a bit about setting, and from my own personal experience, before I turn you loose on one of your, well, one of your greatest strengths, I think, as a GM was was setting. Um, along with character and story and so forth as well, but particularly setting, because until that point, I'd spent an awful lot of energy in trying to learn everything there was to know about a city I was going to run a game. I felt that that was going to be important, being able to absorb those nuances so that you could present them in a game. And I know I spent an awful lot of time on what was in those days the internet, but but was actually called Telnet, where I would go on to chat boards, and uh, I would say, does anybody here live in Washington, D.C.? Because I wanted to actually speak with somebody who lived in Washington, D.C., which is where I was developing a, a vampire game for. So I would go on these boards and, are you from Washington, D.C.? Are you from Washington, D.C.? Are you from Washington, D.C.? Till eventually I could actually find somebody who was from Washington, D.C. And then I would ask them about what the mall was like or what the, I don't mean like the shopping mall, I mean like yeah. the, the, the Washington Needle. The reflecting mall. Yeah, that's right, yeah. yeah. And to get all of those details, like is there rubbish around there? Like do people drop stuff? You know, is it quiet there? Is it noisy? What can you hear? All of those sights and smells um, for uh, something that was exotic and something that was interesting. And then I played um, Mage, and you said it in Wellington, and I thought, well, yeah. that's, that's fairly prosaic. It's not very inspiring, but you described it in such a way and with such a level of detail that it became, it made the story more real, and it gave me, it made me realize the, um, the power that you could get from using a setting that you're actually, somebody who'd actually been. Yeah, I, when I when I was doing that, I, I realised quite quickly that you needed to set it somewhere that they w- that the players weren't absolutely familiar with. Like I couldn't set it in Christchurch, I mm. couldn't because it wouldn't work because other people knew Christchurch better than I did. Right. But I'd lived for five years in Wellington before I moved to um, to Christchurch, and so it was easy to do that. And even then, though, it, the, the setting was, fle- was flexible enough so I could stick stuff in that wasn't there. Like there was a certain area on, um, on the Hutt River near Silverstream where a fortress had been set up to try and block one of the ley lines and, and the technocracy was stealing the, the, the energy that was going through it and using it for other purposes to create these monsters. Um, and so I could describe what I could see and the lie of the land that I knew, but I'd plonked something in there that wasn't there and there wasn't anything there right. in Wellington that was a, 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 a bare piece of land. But um, because I knew Wellington quite well, because it, it also, if you remember, I actually threw a lot of people into the story who were people from Wellington that I knew. Yeah, that's what I was going to get to next, yeah. Yeah. So... Um, when I wanted a, uh, an NPC that had a certain set of characteristics, I just borrowed the person that I knew who most closely fitted that. Mm. So when I wanted somebody who was sort of generally uptight and Dutch and anally retentive, and I had a friend that I knew that would fit, so that, that's who it became. Right. And when I wanted somebody who was the quintessential expression of a marauder, mad as a meat axe, and 
and racing around on rollerblades with a with a bunch of rollerblading penguins, I knew who that person should be. Right, and they're probably listening in right now. So that's me. Uh, yeah, it's me. It's me. <laughs> yeah, I think most authors would say that when they write a story, they borrow heavily from their experiences and from the people that they know, and they probably try quite hard not to make it too obvious who the person is because that person might take offence. And I guess that's something that that I didn't have to worry about in this situation because nobody would remember the details around that person. Um, And when this mysterious figure in a long black trench coat wafted in um, and threatened everybody, um, my friend Mikey in Wellington probably felt a shiver of power run up his back, but he... He wouldn't have been at all upset by that because, um, you know, Mikey's a gamer too and he understands. Right. Because um, I know that there was one character that bled through from uh, reality into fantasy and then back into reality again, the chap that you had playing the vampire. Yeah, yeah. And and that was... Um, that was, was that Jeff? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that yeah. was... Uh, well, um, Jeff decided he would come and visit and then he said... Um, you know, are you running any games while I'm here? And I said, yes. And he looked at me and he was like, am I in it? And he went, yes. <laughs> and he went, right, tell me all about it. Yeah. No, he, he quite he quite nicely fitted the, um, how am I going to put it, the dark sensuality of the vampire that needed to be in the plot. So he ended up being, being that person for a while and when he came, he got to run them. Yeah, that was actually uh, one of the, First, because you were, I didn't, I wasn't aware that you were gay at that stage. But when you were describing the, this dark, sensual vampire, I was think I was thinking to myself when you were describing it. I was thinking it's a very vivid description <laughs> of this man, and I like that you've put a lot of effort into it. But I noticed that none of your female characters have ever actually had so much attention to their various virtues and, and details. That's, that's interesting. That's interesting, yes. <laughs> like I said, nobody was all that surprised when I came out to them. So like, it's, it's like you'd, you'd say something and, and the, in their brains everything would go click and suddenly the piece of the puzzle actually fit in there. Okay, yeah, we can see that. <laughs> yeah, so that was probably the first moment where, you know, I could actually see reality in the, in the game. And that's when I realized that I realized the strength and the power of using things that you know in your role playing game. Um, well, if you, if you look at what, true, right? Yeah, if you look at most of the supplements that are created, they're actually created by people in the States who are living in those areas. I mean, they run their games in San Francisco, or they run their games in New York, or they run their games in Chicago, and that's where they are. So we somehow have. have have made the mistake of thinking that somehow you should be running your games in these places. But I think they, they really do use places that they already know, and that's what makes them really good. But it's it's kind of hard for us to co- to connect to those because even the culture is different in the States. And if we want to play something that we can make really sing, we probably need to do it in... If it's going to be a modern-day thing, it needs to be in New Zealand. Right, or in the place where you are. Um, Sorry, yes, in the place you live. Yeah. Um, and and I don't know if any other um, listeners have any experiences with that, but if you do, Daniel at uh, hazardgaming.com, if you've successfully run games outside or you believe that there's 
a real advantage to perhaps running it in some place where you're not. Now, aside from the obvious thing where you've only lived in one city and uh, everybody else from the same city is where you are right now. So if you have any thoughts about that, just, uh, just drop me a line. Um, so that covers character and setting, but what about a story? Do you cut story from um, whole cloth from things that you've read, or do you like to cobble things together? I mean, you, you, your main plot line, you kind of have to work out where that's going to head and where the story you think it's going to head beforehand. But players being what players are, they tend to go off on tangents, which will pull the story away from where you thought it was going to go. Mm. So sometimes you just let that happen and then later on you work out, okay, cor- correction on course, Captain, where are we heading? And you reconsider the storyline. Um, one of the things that I uh, did at one stage was um, I actually kind of thought about randomly selecting archetypical events and created a story chain of a series of events and then wove the story out of that. Um, And because I was interested in how these archetypical events are so... um, uh, how they resonate so much with people, um, when you do that, suddenly the whole story resonates. Yes. And and the, the detail of the story comes out as they go through each event. But what you're looking for in the story is how will this event unfold, and you can pretty much do that on the fly. Yeah, and that's something that I mention in the book is this idea of tropes, right? Like it's a, yep. this idea of these shared, these common uh, shared resources that we all have about certain things. The example I often give is the, you know, the bomb always being diffused when there's one or two seconds to spare. But particularly um, when it comes to Vic- Victoria, um, our impression of the Victorian times is really crystallised um, because we have had, you know, we've had all these images of Victorian times, or at least the standard uh, way that Victorian times are represented, so mm. that nowadays, any time the Victorian times is represented, it's always represented in the same way. And if someone were to represent it as something as something different to that it may not resonate as well with the audience. So being able to tap into these common shared ideas about a way a certain thing is it can help the whole the whole story to resonate. The other reason I chose the Victorian era is because who doesn't like putting on bad English accents and you know pretending to be uh, people that you're not? It's a nice, easy um, way to people to transition from only speaking in the third person, like my character does this, my character does this, to I do this and I do that, and then maybe even putting on a voice. Yeah. Do you think that it's important for, like, do you think it's an evolution of a person as a gamer to go from being in the third person to being in the first person and even using voices? Or do you think some people are are never going to move out of uh, the third person? Um, I think it's a natural evolution. I think that people, the more they uh, relate to their character, the more they inhabit them. And when you've got a very clear idea of what the character is doing, you project into them and it'll become, I do this and I do that. Um, I, I, I think that just that just happens that way. Right. Just like in any, in any good novel, if you're reading it, at a certain point you become the main character. Right. 
you know, you're experiencing what they're experiencing, you're feeling what they're feeling, and that's what happens. It's the same story effect. Right. So last question then. Um, if you were going to give somebody advice on how they were going to put a story together from from go to woe, and it doesn't need to be in necessarily in huge detail, but where would you, in your experience, where's the most fertile place to start? I'll, I'll give you an example and then and you take over, but um, I like to read uh, real history. And then as I'm reading the history, I start to think about strange ways or like for example if I wanted to run a vampire game I might read a piece of history about the Crimean War or I might read about the Cold War or I might read about you know any number of other things um, and then I would think about how vampires could somehow have affected the way that history turned out and from that I start to get the idea of characters and from there the story develops um, and, and so I would begin with characters, and then I would go to story and so forth. How did, how's, what's your workflow on that sort of, on developing a story from, from a blank page? Mm. I don't know that I've ever really watched myself do it, so I'm, I'm, I'm not exactly sure how to answer this one. Um, I, I think I normally start from one like yourself, from something that is inspiring to me. So it may be a supplement that somebody's produced. So it might be my Iron Wind supplement and I'm reading through it and I'm thinking, God, I love reading, you know. And then you think, oh, you know, imagine if we had this story happen. So a rift in time opens, time and space opens, and a boatload of Vikings get dropped off the coast of this island. What would happen? And so you've got some sort of flavour to start with, and then you think, well, how am I going to introduce people and what would be the flow of events thereafter? And then, then is there anything, is there any big things going on in the background that I need to flavour this with and how would that unfold from there? And do I want to have um, um, archetypical events for the characters happening? You know, what's going to happen? Are we going to have the, the, the wise old advisory man turning up or the ancient crone who who makes dark and foreboding prophecies, or you know, what do I want to throw in there to flavour the mix? What what would make this a, a, a more complete experience for the for the players? Do I want to have some music going in the background? Do I want to have some images that they'd look at? This is what an ancient Egyptian city would look like. Do I want to talk about uh, the Egyptian Book of the Dead? Do I want to talk about um, how soldiers in Crimea used to be? broken into their ranks and then never the two should meet and you know how am I going to flavor this so it it becomes something that to the the, the gamer um, has that flavor of the real about it the other thing for me is as I said I, I tend to daydream the the game I tend to play it out to some extent and when you do that you've got you've got good touch with the game you kind of know how things would unfold and your and your belief in what you're saying is picked up by the gamers. Yes. And that's exactly yeah. what I was coming around to there, Chris, the, the point that I was hoping to finish on, which is that your belief in your story was always the strongest part of the game. You knew you were telling a good story. You had all your ducks in a row. And whether that comes from wide reading or whether it comes from a specific type of preparation 
Um, I think as a GM, one of the most important things you have to do is you have to feel the game or feel the story that you're trying to tell. And if you feel that story you're trying to tell and you bring the enthusiasm, then everybody is gonna, everybody's going to get on board, whether it's necessarily their cup of tea or not. If you're engaging and you're, you're well prepared in whatever way you decide to prepare, everybody's going to have a good time. And at the end of the day, that's really what role-playing is all about, regardless yeah. of the, any of the details. So thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us this, today, Chris. Most welcome. Most welcome. Thank you very much for the invitation. And, um, yeah, I wish everybody out there a lot of fun and um, get out there and play Victoria. <laughs> Thanks for saying that, Chris. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> Chris Bailey. That's it for Episode 5 of Penny Red. For any comments regarding issues arising during the show, go to pennyredpodcast.com. Or if you'd like to drop either Chris or myself a line directly, info at hazardgaming.com. Next week's episode will take a slightly different tack as it's the first part of a before and after series of interviews. My guest will be Ethan Mason, a role player to be. Until then, keep talking to walk. <laughs>